So here we are. Uh, this is uh, part five and the conclusion uh, of our series. We've been talking for the last uh, four weeks now about attitudes, and uh, we've been uh, making our uh, case for how important attitudes are, that uh, they have a profound effect upon uh, the quality of our life and those that are around us and have uh, eternal implications as well. And uh, so I want to, if you're here today for the first time, I just want to kind of catch you up as to where we've been, and then I'm going to tell you what we're going to do this morning and, and uh, the direction that we're going to go to conclude uh, this series. So a uh, very, very brief uh, kind of uh, uh, a heads up on where we've been in part one. We brought out the, the importance of uh, being people who express gratitude, that, that uh, what we discovered is that we, we wanted to be the, the one that comes back, the one that returns and gives uh, thanks uh, for what God has done for us or what others have done for us in our life. And, and so uh, we discovered that uh, grateful feelings and thankful thoughts uh, are really useless until they're expressed because this is what we discovered, that, that, that unexpressed gratitude is, it communicates ingratitude. Unexpressed gratitude communicates ingratitude. And so that's why this uh, issue of attitudes are so important. In part two, uh, we said that it's impossible to exaggerate or possible, impossible to overstate the importance of uh, the subject of, of attitudes. And what we said was that attitude determines latitude, that the way up is down, that, that Jesus said whoever will promote himself or exalt himself, which is pride, will be brought low, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And, and we pointed to Jesus, the ultimate example, who journeyed from the highest height to the lowest low and then back again to the right hand of majesty. And so attitude determines altitude and uh, the way up is down. In part three, we said that attitude is the filter through which we perceive the world and through which the world perceives us. It's the grid or the lens through which we see the world and through which the world sees us. And that's why attitudes are so important. And people that have a bad attitude look at life through a, a, a very negative lens and, and therefore uh, that's what they see and that's what they get. In part four last week, we, we, we said this, that Jesus has solved the issue of guilt and shame and, and therefore there's no longer uh, the issue of guilt and condemnation. He has remo- removed even accusation from the, the children of God and therefore we can have a conscience that is an unguilty conscience or a conscience that is clear that has been uh, made clean by the, by the life of, of Jesus Christ. And so we are free now to uh, have a, a renewed attitude in, in the spirit of our mind. If you're here this morning for the first time and you're just kind of catching up on, on what we're, we're doing and saying, and, and let me just say this, that, that even if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, we just want you to know how absolutely delighted we are that you're here. And uh, one of the things that, that, that we just want to share with you, you, you may not be a follower of Jesus. You, you, you may not be sure what you believe or you may have some doubts or some questions. That, that doesn't put us off in the least. In fact, in fact what, what we would like to do is to introduce you to the real Jesus. And we know that once you meet the real Jesus, that you'll be just as blown away 
as we have been blown away by meeting the real Jesus who has loved us and given himself for us. And so just want to say again, thanks for coming and and for being uh, adventurous and, and being here this morning. So let me start this morning by reading this statement. This is the direction that we're going. This is the theme that we're going to cover this morning. And it's found in this statement. There is a God-shaped attitude that is incapable of being conquered. I just love that statement. There is a God-shaped attitude that is impossible or incapable of being conquered. So, so let me kind of give you the definition of that, and let me kind of give you a couple of examples of what I, I mean by this God-shaped attitude that's incapable of being conquered. I think of the word indomitable. Everybody say indomitable. Say it again, indomitable. That is not to be confused with the snowman. Okay, that's a different word altogether. No, indomitable. When I, when I think of the word indomitable, so, some, something close to the definition of a God-shaped in, indomitable spirit would be this, incapable of being overcome, subdued, or vanquished. It is unconquerable, invincible, resolute, steadfast, unbeatable, unyielding, and unflinching. How many of you would like to have that operating in your life as a daily attitude? Come on, to be unyielding and unflinching and unbeatable and invincible. And I believe with all my heart that God wants to shape this attitude. You see, I believe that we're a work in progress and that God is conforming us and shaping us daily into the image of his son. And, and this really does model his son so, so well. But, but I want to share with you this morning that, that in life or in death, we are to have this victorious attitude. It's a fixed frame of mind shaped by having confidence in God. It's an unshakable way of thinking, even in the face of adversity and hardship and and negative circumstances. It's a stance and a posture of the mind. It's the human spirit that has become infused with with, with God's grace. And because God himself is incapable of being overcome, therefore, God's children ought to model and ought to bear the image of their heavenly father. So let me just give you a couple of examples. And I want, to, I want you to see, we could cite, we could cite too many that would, would, would just kind of uh, overwhelm us this morning. But, but this spirit, is, is, it, it pervades the whole of scripture and the history of men and women who've been walking with God. So I'll just give you a couple of brief examples, and then we'll dive into one main person that we'll look at for the remainder of the, of the message this morning. Let's, let's let, consider Abraham as a, a work in progress over the long years, God working in him through trials and through adversity and God developing in him until he got to the place where, where he was unflinching in his obedience toward God when God said to him, Abraham, take now your son, the one that you love, Isaac, your only beloved son, Isaac, and offer him up as a human sacrifice. And Abraham was unflinching in his obedience to God because Abraham reasoned in his mind. His mind was able to reason that God was able even to raise Isaac up from the dead in order to fulfill his promises, that through him would all the nations of the earth be blessed. And so that confidence in God, 
that unshakable, unmovable confidence in God, Abraham demonstrated an invincible or an indomitable attitude toward, toward, toward life and toward God. Take Joseph as, as another example. And, and the, the men that I mentioned this morning, a couple of them, there's a common denominator. And this common denominator you'll be able to see develop as we go through example after example. I, I, I love this quote, though. Let me start with this quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, hardship often prepares an ordinary person for an extraordinary destiny. Hardship often prepares an ordinary person for an extraordinary destiny. And that is so true. That is the common denominator that we see in each of the individuals that we're studying this morning. Joseph is another example of an indomitable spirit. In spite of the fact that he, was, he, he suffered betrayal at the hands of his brothers, brothers who were older than him, brothers who should have been looking out for their kid brother, they sold him into slavery, told their father, broke their fa- his father's heart, told him that he was dead. He goes from slavery to, be, to being a slave, and then, and then as a slave, he is falsely accused of attempted rape. Now, now, those that were responsible for Joseph's imprisonment knew that Joseph was innocent because, listen, any slave who would attempt to, to do something, a crime like that, would have, would have been executed right on the spot. But Joseph was sent to prison for the next 12 plus years of his life. He's forgotten in prison by men, but he's not forgotten by God. And, and in prison, one of the great things that happens to Joseph and one of the great messages, one of the stories of Joseph is that, listen, your life can change overnight. Your life can change in one single day. In one day, you can go from rags to riches, from the, from the dungeon to the palace, as long as you keep trusting and putting your confidence in God. And Joseph was, was, was that kind of an unconquerable spirit. Joseph, way back, way back in the book of Genesis, reminds us or teaches us or is an example that God is at work in all things for our good and for his glory. And this brief sketch that we're looking at this morning, this common denominator of those who've gone through difficulty and gone through hardship. Look at Caleb for a a moment. Caleb is, if you don't know, he's one of the 10 spies that God sent out, one of the 12 spies that God sent out into the land to spy out the land of Canaan and come back and bring a report. And the 10 that brought this evil and negative report, he's distinguished from them because God says about him, he has another spirit. He is, he is other than, different than, than the ones who brought back a negative report. They looked at life through the negative lens of their evil report. But Caleb says, we can go up immediately and take the land because we are well able. It says about Caleb that he wholeheartedly followed the Lord. Now listen, through 40 years of harsh wilderness crossing, and then another five years of conquering and fighting in the land, at the age of 85, you got to love this guy. At the age of 85, he says, I am just as strong as I was when I was 40 to take the mountain. And you know, he said, he said give me this land. He was not afraid of giants at the age of 85. Come on, I want to be there at 85 being as strong as that, you know? But I think maybe the quintessential person that I want to look at this morning for this kind of indomitable spirit, this attitude of overcoming, is is the man we call Paul, Paul the Apostle. 
All of the things that he endured, all of the suffering from the very beginning, the prophecy when, when he was first called by God was that there would be many things that he would suffer for the namesake of Christ. And boy, did he suffer all kinds of things, imprisonments, being beaten with rods, being stoned, being lashed. But the thing that blows me away is not just the things that Paul literally went through, the, the, the marks of, of suffering were in his body, but, 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 the, but what blows me away was his attitude toward them. Now, I want you to look at a couple of verses with me this morning. This is what he taught. This is, this is what he believed. But then we're going to look at another example of how he lived. So in Romans 8, verse 18, Paul says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. The sufferings, are you kidding me, Paul? What you've been through, he says, it's not worthy of comparison. Because Paul had a forward looking and a forward thinking about the glory that would be ours. And what he was saying was that our life isn't going to end. The the story of our life isn't going to end and they lived happily ever after. No, that's not the end of our story. The beginning of of our story will be eternal glory. And that's what Paul had in his mind. Look at what he says in 2 Corinthians 4, 17. For our light affliction which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. you got to be kidding me, Paul. You were beaten three times with rods. Five times from the Jews, he received 39 lashes in prisons. All the things that Paul went through. And what he says, he views it as a light affliction by comparison with, the again, the weight of glory that God is at work in us. All of the, the venom of, of Satan, all of the, the hatred among the Jews, all of the violence among, among the Romans, all of the, even the natural catastrophes that Paul found himself in. And on top of it all, he is, he is more than a conqueror through the one who loved him. But having this unconquerable spirit, right? This spirit that's invincible is, 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 is not in spite of, you know, uh, having a wonderful life. No, it's not that at all. It's in spite of going through hardship and difficulties and and adversity and remaining confident in God, being assured that what God has promised, he is able also to perform. So turn with me in your Bibles, or if you look up on the screen, we're going to look at a couple of verses, again, from what Paul taught. And he said this to the Corinthians, but he's also speaking to us. And what Paul was saying was, was in, in the verses that come right before this, that, we, that the gospel, that the light of the glory of the knowledge of God, we, we have received this as a deposit within us. This is glorious, Paul is talking about. And then he says this in verse seven. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. That is the knowledge of God. We, we are the jars of clay. We, we, are, we are fragile. We are vulnerable. You know, jars of clay, if Paul were talking in today's vernacular or today's culture, he, he would say, we are, we, we are made out of styrofoam. We're so vulnerable. We're so weak in and of ourselves. But that is to display what he says in the next line is to show this all-surpassing power is from God and not of us. That is that we are weak in and of ourselves. 
But there is a strength and a power that we can be infused with that God fills us like vessels so that we can become this, this invincible person having this attitude that refuses to flinch or refuses to give up. He says this in verse 8. He says, we are hard-pressed on every side. I don't know if you've ever felt that kind of pressure where the pressure is coming in. It seems like it's coming in from, from, from behind and from before, from, from all sides. You know, financial pressure, physical pressure, uh, spiritual pressure, emotional pressure, pressure like you're being squeezed. And Paul's saying, though we're feeling this pressure, I want you to look at this next word that he uses, but, but. I've said this on many occasions that I think that the word but is probably one of the most important words in the Bible. He says, we are hard-pressed on every side, but we are not crushed. We are uncrushable. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Perplexed means that you're in a state of of confusion, that, that you don't have an answer as to what's going on in your life. Sometimes we have more questions than we have answers. In fact, sometimes we can't even articulate the questions because of the perplexing circumstances that we find ourselves in. But Paul says, in spite of the perplexity, we are not in despair, persecuted, again, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. I mean, you got to love this kind of an attitude. Where, where you can be knocked down but not knocked out because no matter how many times you've been knocked down, you get up again and you fight and you get up again and you keep fighting and you get up again and you keep believing and you keep, you keep trusting and you, your confidence in God grows through the experience. One of the great things about Joseph is coming out of the prison Joseph was wiser and Joseph was stronger than when he first went into prison. And that's what happens to us when we go through these trials and these adversities. We go in one way, but we come out stronger and wiser. I tell you what, this kind of stubborn spirit, you know, I I know a lot about being stubborn. I've been stubborn all my life from the time I was a little kid. And, And a lot of my stubbornness was negative, and I, and I think that God turned some of that negative stubbornness into a positive stubbornness. I think it runs in my family. I think about my grandson, Cade, when, when he was like about yay big, right? Just a toddler, you know? And uh, he was learning how to navigate the stairs. And uh, he would go up and down the stairs, right? And, and learn how to go up and down the stairs when you're, you know, uh, when you're a toddler, right? And on this one occasion, he, he stumbled and fell down the stairs and got hurt. But he shook it off, and, and instead of being comforted by mom, am I telling the truth, Cal? Instead of being comforted by, by, his, by his mama, he went right back up to the top of the stairs. Even though he was already down, he went right back up at the top of the stairs, and he came back down again because he wanted to do it the right way. That's what I call being stubborn. Now, let me tell you something. That's the kind of attitude that's going to see victory come to pass. In 1519... Cortez, the Spanish explorer, landed in what is today called Veracruz, Mexico. And when, and when he landed there, listen, to make sure that everybody was on the same page. Now, there were two expositions or expeditions that, that were there before him that failed, that, that, that were unable to establish a settlement. 
But when, but, but, but when Cortez got there, what he did was he ordered that the fleet of 11 ships be burned. Could you imagine that? He burned these bridges behind him. He wanted to make sure that his men were on the same page so that they had to dig in and to conquer the land for king and for country. Now imagine, imagine that. At that point, there was no turning back. Imagine that we had that kind of an attitude, that we burn our bridges behind us of this world, that there's no going back, that, that, that failure is not a part of our vocabulary or retreat is not a part of our vocabulary. Imagine what we can accomplish for our king and the kingdom if we had that kind of a mindset and that kind of a commitment and an attitude. Historians say about Cortez was the reason why he succeeded was because of his determination. That kind of attitude brought success. I was reading the other day about a 12-year-old boy who was snorkeling in one of the rivers in Florida. Not a good idea. An alligator took a bite out of him or actually bit him on his head. And actually, as as he was running out of the water... Uh, The alligator chased him right out of the water and his mother saw what was going on and she jumped into the fray and was wrestling with the alligator and wrestled her son literally out of the jaws of death. Now he broke his leg, but she rescued her son. And I, I wish I could tell you it was on Mother's Day. It would make the story a lot better, you know. But let me tell you, you don't mess with a mother when her, when her child is, is in danger, you know. I mean, there's just something about that. You know, could you imagine if we had that kind of determination? And, and, and isn't it true, though, that, that stuff like this happens? You know, we hear about these extraordinary feats of, of, of strength and courage that, that come in these extraordinary moments. You know, a, a mother or, 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 or somebody does something that's extraordinary. And maybe, maybe one of the reasons why they're able to do it is because Think about it, in, in the normal everyday courses of life, when we, when we face something that's hard or impossible, we're kind of tempted to either give up or, or to quit. But maybe the problem isn't that it's as impossible as it is that there's not an internal sense of urgency. And maybe, maybe if we had that, that same kind of an attitude as that mother of having that urgency of, of serving and working and snatching people out of the, out of the, the, the jaws of death ourselves or out of, the, out of the powers of hell, that we would accomplish much for the kingdom of God. I want to look in our final scripture this morning at the book of uh, Acts this morning. For those of you who don't know, the book of Acts follows the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then there's the book of Acts, and, and, and it's called the book of Acts, of course, because it is the actions of the disciples or the church. And it's the record of the things that they did after Jesus was resurrected and went back into heaven. And, uh, you know, the, the great thing is, is that the, there's no the end at the end of the book. There's no amen at the end of the book. In other words, that the acts of the church are to continue just as they began way back then. And uh, this particular portion of Scripture is, is Paul and Barnabas. They're on their first uh, missionary journey. And uh, God was confirming their, their, their gospel, their word, with signs and with wonders. In fact, there was a man who had been lame all of his life who was listening to Paul. And Paul perceived that the man had faith in order to be healed. 
And so Paul said to the man in front of them all, stand up. And the man stood up and it was able to walk. And everybody went nuts. Everybody went crazy in that city, right? They thought, truly, these are superheroes that have come among us, right? But no matter where Paul and Barnabas went, followed behind were, were Jewish instigators who sought to undermine the work of the gospel. And this is where we pick up in the story. So in Acts 14, verse 19, it says, Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and they won the crowd over, meaning that they convinced the crowd that these men were deceivers worthy of death, that these men had only come to deceive them, right? And so as a result of it, it says this, that they stoned Paul and they dragged him outside the city thinking or supposing that he was dead. They stoned him. They took up rocks and they began to throw it at Paul. And they knocked him at least, at the very least, they knocked him unconscious. And they dragged him outside of the city. They thought that he was dead. Listen, when you've been pelted with rocks like that, I mean, I, I have no doubt that, that, that his body was not only bruised, but bloodied as well. They thought he was dead. They thought they had finished him off. Now, there are some speculation, and that's what it is, it's speculation, that Paul may have, in fact, really did die. Because Paul writes about an incident that took place in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, about 14 years before. And he says, and he's talking in the second person. He says that, that I know a man, whether he was in his body or whether he was having an out-of-body experience, he says, I can't tell. He says, such a man was caught up into the very paradise of God and heard things that are, that are impossible to express. It's believed that Paul literally did die, or at the very least, what we have here is a miracle anyway, because I want you to notice what happens in the next verse. It says that they stoned Paul and they dragged him outside of the city, but after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up, he got up, he got up, and he went back into the city. He went right back into the very city in which he had just been stoned. Now, I don't know about you, but listen, I do a little bit of gardening, and I feel sore, you know? I, I do a little bit of exercising, and I feel sore. I play softball on Monday and Tuesday. On Wednesday, I was sore. This guy gets pelted with rocks, and he gets back up, and he goes right back into the city. And in fact, in the next verse, it says, and the next day, Paul and Barnabas, they traveled or they went to Derby. Now, I want you to think about that. Traveling back in the day was not easy. And so, listen, at the very least, we have, we have a miracle of God's grace. In fact, Paul, Paul writes about this to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.11 and says, remember the persecutions that I endured in Lystra, how God rescued me out of them all. So one of the things I want you to know is that God, God may allow Paul to go through, but God's going to be with Paul, and Paul's going to come out stronger and wiser than when he went in. It says this in verse 21, that they preached the good news in that city and won large numbers of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. They went right back into the very cities in which they had been persecuted. 
And they strengthened the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. Listen, not only are we to be invincible, but we are to spread this message of being invincible to others. They encouraged them to be steadfast, continue in the faith. For he said this, for we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. That last sentence is not just a forewarning of what to expect. It is a promise. It's a promise that we can go through whatever it is that God has in store for us. Let me just say this, that if anybody tells you being a follower of Jesus is an easy life, you know, it's, it's gonna be a bed of roses. It's gonna be trouble-free. Don't believe them. All they that will live godly in Christ Jesus, Paul said, will experience persecution of some kind or another. Let me say this, that Paul viewed these troubles as those verses I read before as a light affliction in comparison with the glory that awaits us. I came across, I came across this story that I felt was, was so inspirational that I wanted to share it in its entirety with you. So I just want you to give this a listen. It's about a mother, appropriate on Mother's Day. It's about a mother. And she writes this. She says, 19 years ago, my son was born normal. I did everything by the book to have the healthiest pregnancy. By a few months of age, my son started to change and display low muscle tone and delay. She asked two questions. Did immunization affect him? Were there neurotoxins in them that his body reacted to? No answers. Questions. When he turned one, he began to have grand mal seizures. At 18 months, he sustained a brain injury from seizure activity lasting almost an hour. That was the worst day of my life. There was a blizzard, and the ambulance took so long to get to my house and to get us to the hospital. The ambulance worker was too young and unqualified. Once in the ER, I realized that there was a skeleton crew on duty, meaning that because of the weather, most of the staff didn't come to work. The staff that treated my son could not get an IV access to administer meds to stop the seizures. I have never seen this in my practice as an ER nurse. I tried to push my way into the room to start the IV myself. I was pregnant with our second child. They stopped me. The care for my son was quite negligent that day. And professionally, I know that there are ways to obtain an IV access quickly. They failed to do that. And while my son became more and more oxygen deprived, ironically, only a few months later, the FDA approved a rectal gel that can be administered for cases just like this. It works. I know I've used it. But from that day, but for that day, a few months too late for a lifetime of brain injury, we never sued or collected from the hospital by choice. And she writes this. That brings me to today. I could spend every waking moment thinking about the mistakes of that day the negligence, the incompetence of the staff, how God allowed a blizzard, how the meds came only a few months too late. But what good would that do me? 
I would be living in the past in anger, in resentment, in just plain darkness. Believe it or not, she says, the worst things in my life have actually caused me to become grateful for all of the wonderful things in my life. Darkness has pushed me into the light. Loss has motivated me to realize all that I have gained through it. Is it hard? Yes. Has it been painful? Yes. Are there other people's lives affected? Yes. Still, she writes, I must go forward and receive the treasure buried deep in the field of my life and yield a harvest that will not only benefit me, but many others. We all have a choice, she writes. Still learning, still working on the ground of my field. That, beloved, is an attitude that is incapable of being overcome. It is an attitude that says it's indomitable. It is unflinching. It is unquenchable. What I want you to know this morning is this, that there is a God-shaped attitude that is incapable of being overcome. And I believe that God wants every single one of us in this place to possess this kind of a God-shaped attitude. It is God working on us, a work in progress, conforming us to the image of his Son, His son set his face like a flint toward Jerusalem. Jesus was invincible. The cry from the cross, it is finished. One word was a victorious cry. Jesus himself is the one that we are to to follow after. And Paul said, follow me even as I follow after Christ. And what I want you to see this morning is this, that I believe that the key to having this kind of a in an undefeatable attitude is, is, is our connection to Jesus. When, when we are connected in faith to him, one of the things about Paul was his passion to know Jesus. He said, forgetting those things which lie behind, I press toward the mark of the calling of God that's in Christ. I want to know him, said Paul. The, the man who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament had a had a an insatiable appetite to know Jesus. I believe that the more we hunger to know him, the more our confidence in him will be, will be developed and built. But it's not just a confidence in his person, but it's a confidence, I believe, in the unconditional love that he has for you and for me. So let me just close with this from Romans chapter eight. And Paul said this, no, in all these things, We are more than conquerors through him, through Jesus who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height or depth or anything else in all creation. It's like Paul says, let me just throw it out. Nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Now he said, We started this paragraph by saying that we are more than conquerors through Christ. What does that mean? What does it mean, Paul, to be? I understand what it means to be a conqueror. What does it mean to be more than a conqueror? It means to go through all of the conflict that Paul has just mentioned. 
But you come out the other side wiser and stronger. You come out more confident, unshakable in the knowledge of God's love because you don't go through this alone. You have come to discover that God is a very present help in your time of trouble. You've come to know this love of God personally. Now, I don't know if this is, it's not Bible, but it is kind of history. They say that when Paul was, was, was brought to his execution, he was taken outside of the city of Rome and, and on the road to his execution, to the axe in the block, that they passed through the, the, the statues of the heroes of, of, of Rome, of the Caesars, of, of Augustus Caesar and of Julius Caesar, and uh, the inscriptions that were on them, it, the, the history kind of says this, that one of the soldiers pointed to one of the Caesars and said, truly, Paul, a conqueror. And Paul, in confidence, pointed up to heaven and said, yes, but more than a conqueror. We become more than conquerors through the one who's given himself for us, who loved us, who, who loved us so much that he gave himself for us. What I want you to take away this morning is to know this, that having an unconquerable attitude begins with knowing Christ and growing confident in his love. Do you know him this morning? Is there a passionate desire? Is there a hunger to want to know him more? To search the scriptures, Jesus said, for for in them they testify of me. I tell you what, when you have a passion to uncover Jesus from the word of God. See, see, Paul is, is our apostle. Pa- pa- Paul is just like us who obtained mercy, just like we obtained mercy. But he's like us because he didn't know Jesus in his ministry, in, in his earthly ministry or after the flesh. Just like we didn't know Jesus after the flesh, we have to discover the same Jesus that Paul discovered through the scriptures. And Paul was able to say, in some of the most difficult times in his life, that the Lord stood by me. Though everybody else forsake me, yet the Lord stood by me. And I just want you to know this morning, if you're going through one of these episodes, one of these conflicts this morning, what I want you to know this morning is that you're not alone. That he will go through with you. That he is able to, to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before his presence with exceeding joy. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you this morning for this series, and we pray that more than just information, that, that today, Lord God, that you will have inspired us with this very same attitude. Just as you said, let this attitude be in you that was also in Christ. I pray this morning that, that these attitudes that we've looked at over the last five weeks will become so much a part of us that this incredible spirit, this attitude in which we see life through, in which others see us through, will be the model of the Son of God himself. So Lord, take this word this morning, sow it deep into our hearts as a seed and bring forth fruit unto salvation. If you're here this morning and you've never had Jesus Christ to become your personal Lord and Savior, I want you to just take this opportunity to invite you to do that. You you just start a conversation very simply like this. You say, Jesus, come into my heart. Be the Lord and Savior of my life. I, 
confess to you my weakness, my faults, my sins. Save me. Forgive me of my sins. Come into my life. It's not magic words. It's, it's the transaction that takes place through faith. And if you did that this morning, I want you to tell somebody about it. Come up for prayer at the end of the service or, or, or just pray with the person that has brought you to church this morning. God bless you today.